and amen. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And there's a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards, and he wrote a dissertation basically explaining the reason for which God created man and more specifically created the world. And in that, he defines the reason God created the world and created us. God created the world and created us for his own glory. So everything that exists does exist to show and display and reflect the glory of God. That's the intended purpose for creation. And what Satan wants to do is try to get us to not understand the magnitude of that calling and to get us to live lesser lives and serve lesser things that become idols to us and keep us from experiencing our true calling, which is a high calling, which is to show and be the evidence of God in the earth. That the world exists as a stage or a theater for the glory of God. And you and I are the main players on that stage to show the glory of God in the earth. So separate from us, God doesn't get the glory he deserves. You say, man, Matt, you make God sound so selfish. That the world would be all about him. That my life would have to be all about him. The evil of selfishness is to put something of lesser degree in a place of importance. See, that's the evil of selfishness. So if like, I put myself and my needs above my family's, that's evil. Come on, somebody. I know it's quiet in here, but come on now. Right? If I put my needs and my wants above this church body, that would be an evil of selfishness. But God being the supreme entity in all the earth, that the world is about him and his glory because he's the most supreme thing in the universe. So not only is, is it about God and his glory, but here's this really cool part about God. Are you ready? God is also very good. So it's not just about God and he getting glory and you not getting you getting crumbs. It's about God getting glory and then that overflow of glory in him he begins to pour over into you so that you could be a conduit from him into the earth and show the glory of God and do the mighty exploits of God and do what God has called and created you to do on this earth that that is the reason that we have all been created. So God defines how he wants to be glorified. He defines how he wants to be glorified. Now Jesus says something very peculiar in John chapter 14 and also in 16. He's talking with his disciples and he knows he's fixing to go to the cross. He tells them he's going to raise from the dead. But there is going to be this period of time where he's not going to be with them. And he tells them that it's to your benefit that he's not going to be with them any longer. How many of you know if you're walking with Jesus, God in the flesh, and he's palling around with you, and then he turns to you and says, it's going to be better that I'm not, no longer with you, 
that's going to cause some concern in your heart. Amen? How can it be better to not have Jesus physically, bodily, with me, walking with me every single day? How can that not, how can there be something better than that? And then Jesus begins to describe that he is going to send one after him called the Comforter, or better, the Helper. The word is paraclete in the Greek, para meaning alongside, and kletos meaning called aid. So that Jesus is sending one that's going to be alongside of us and be called in to help us, to aid us in every single thing that we might experience in our life. That God goes from being beside us to move to the closest and most intimate place that he possibly can, and that is in us. So Jesus wants to be glorified in the earth, but in order to be glorified, he doesn't want to stay continuously walking around on the earth and watching people do his acts and doing his exploits and, and, and watching him teach and whatever else. That that's not what God would, would do in order to be glorified. What God would most like to do in order to be glorified is to be on the inside of you and then come upon you and then to see you do the exploits and then you be the evidence of God in the earth. See, it's not just about coming up here saying a prayer and then getting rid of your sin habits. This is about the glory of God. We are on a cosmic mission that God is redeeming even the stars that are twinkling in the sky and you get to have a part of it. The Bible also says that you will judge angels. Am I lying to you? God says you will judge angels. See, this ain't about your little divorce. It ain't about your habit. It ain't about your this or your that. We're talking about judging angels and walking in the glory of God. And I believe the church has missed it, not because we've set our target too high, but we've set it so low that people are bored with the church. They're bored. People say, man, I'd rather get an extra hour of sleep. Some of you might be saying right now, I'd rather have an extra hour of sleep. I don't know. I'm going to take my chances with you, though. So God would most be glorified by dwelling on the inside of us and then anointing and empowering us so that people would see him through us. That Jesus is the picture of how God wants to be glorified. That he wants to be God in the flesh operating through men where men might see our good works and give glory to God who is in heaven. So Jesus then raises from the dead and he spends 40 days teaching his disciples. After that 40-day period of teaching and, and ascensions, Jesus tells them his last thing as he ascends into heaven. He says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. 
I want you to wait in Jerusalem and tarry there until you've been endued with power from on high. So Jesus is transitioning to not just being in them, but to be on them and immerse them in his spirit, whereby everything that they do would then have the presence of God on it and be the evidence of God in the earth. That you would be empowered to do life and people to watch you do life and say, wow, the glory of God is on that person. So Jesus tells them to tarry in the same place. Just days earlier, they pinned him on a cross and killed him. And he tells them, I need you to be my witnesses, or in the Greek, martus, which is where we get the word martyr. So Jesus is saying, you'll be my martyrs, Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the world. But don't you dare do anything until this Holy Spirit comes, whereby you wouldn't do ministry with just God in you and people would see you, but you would do ministry with my covering and people would begin to see me. In America, we have a celebrity preacher culture. And I'm going to tell you right now, I think people are seeing more of men than they are of God. God said, don't go. Can you imagine what that 10-day prayer meeting must have sounded like? Remember, this is the place that killed Jesus and we're going to persecute anybody that was following Jesus. Can you imagine what that 10-day prayer meeting must have sounded like? Probably doesn't sound like our quiet time. <laughs> oh, Lord, help my language today. See ya. See, we're believing for little things. We're believing for little things. That 10-day prayer meeting must have sounded like a roar. Because they knew if God doesn't show up, we're all dead. And that reality is true for me and you today in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If God doesn't show up, it's life or death. Somebody will die in their addiction. Somebody will die in their sin. They won't ever be faced with the reality of God and repent and come to Jesus and experience the most glorious life they could. They won't do it unless there's a church that will get down and pray and begin to roar and begin to call out and say, we are not satisfied for anything unless it's the presence of God that would break into the earth and begin to change our city. This is what God is calling us to. God's been dealing with me. Think about your think if God answered your prayers. Would you be different or would the world be different? We're aiming too low. We're aiming too low. You were created for too much glory to waste your life. And I'm convinced that it's not fallenness is the evil of man. It's not fallenness.
It's worth. It's God has invested too much for you to waste it. It's like when dad throws you the keys to the old Pinto. Says, go make a block. Huh? Go make a block. And then you wreck it. You come home. Dad's like, eh. It's the old Pinto, son. I love you. Let me hold you. Now you go wreck daddy's Ferrari. See, the issue isn't the nature of the thing. The issue is the worth of the thing. The reason why God would put such a high standard and be willing to send people to hell for eternity is because the price is too great for you to waste being created in his image and supposed to be the conduit of why people are going to see God in the earth, that your responsibility is so high, your worth is so high, that's why there's so much at stake, that's why there's so many particular things in the Bible you say, well man, I hate to do this, or man, that seems boring, or that seems bad, or whatever. Don't waste your life because you've got too much worth and potential on the inside of you to waste it much it's too much can't do ministry without the Holy Spirit we can't do life without the Holy Spirit you need the Holy Spirit to raise the dead but you need the Holy Spirit to raise your kids come on somebody come on I know some of your kids y'all need the Holy Ghost up in here come on now we're just saying how it is. Matter of fact, raising kids are probably just protocol to raising the dead. I'm not playing. That's serious. Because if you can bring a kid from death to life by your example, life and ministry... That's the hardest thing to save, you know. I think where we miss it, maybe rightfully so, is we miss it because of the trappings maybe that we've been raised with. That the Holy Spirit is, we've sensed to be a power that shows up just to enhance our services. So our services are a little better, but we walk out of here not being apprehended by a person, but just experiencing the overflow of a power. That God would have us move from this power initiative to see him as a person in which we are handing ourselves to, not a power that we're asking to help us do life. That the Holy Spirit wants to move and do things in you that would blow our minds if we really knew what God's plan and vision for our life was. It'd blow, it'd blow our minds. It would blow your absolute mind. I want to read you this quote by Smith Wigglesworth. He said, Pentecost came with the sound of a mighty Russian wind, a violent blast from heaven. Heaven has not exhausted its blasts, but our danger is we are getting frightened of them. And maybe we have become too casual. And I get it. I grew up in this thing, man. I know. 
I've seen, whoa. Busted. Canine units here. <laughs> Pull the trash can out. Come clean, everybody. <laughs> is it okay to have some fun in church? Is it okay? Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. If this is home, this is, should be like home. Okay. And so being raised in this thing, I understand that there's trappings that come with a denomination or a fellowship that sometimes is kind of can seem weird to you, right? What in the world? You have my permission to eliminate that suspect, whatever. Just playing, just playing. And that sometimes the trappings of things can scare you and make you feel weird. And there's sometimes that spiritual things are just not going to be apprehended by your natural mind. So there's a level that we have to get out of our minds sometimes. We have to get out of our mind and, and, and get into our heart and, and ascertain things by the spiritual man, not just mentally. But I get it. I, I remember people trying to lead me through to the Holy Ghost, right? Some weird things could happen. More so back then than now, but you got one person telling you to let go, another person telling you to hold on, one person's got this cheek, other person got this cheek. Somebody's hitting your forehead. Other person's doing this. Saying G, 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 you know. And you're just like, what is going on right now? I feel violated or abused. And, but, here's the, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. Those people were very well-meaning. And they wanted others to experience the joy and the power that they had experienced. So there's times that I'm zealous and I do things that people misinterpret. I know I'm not perfect like you guys, right? So, I mean, you know, I, you know, I know I'm, I'm, when I miss it, you know, it's... But the reality is, God wants to fill you more than you want to be filled. And you don't have to worry about those trappings or those weird things. I remember when I was filled with the Holy Spirit, it was uh, Rick Crutchfield, some of you might know, he's from Malvern. He's went on to be with the Lord and his mother, what was her name, Mom? Can't, can't remember either. But it was his mother... And I just felt a seven-week revival had broke out at Malvern. And I was sitting on the front row, and I just felt this unction to just, just give everything to God. I can't even explain it to you. I don't know where it come from. And I came forward and threw my hands up. And it was just like, I'm going to try to give you the best example it was like somebody poured a bucket of warm honey all over me. 
that's weird, I know. But just, how do you explain that? You know what I'm saying? And it was like every fear, every worry, it just left. And it was just me and God in a moment. And it marked my heart. And it so marked my heart that I'm willing to tell you as real as Jesus is, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is just as real. Just as real. And so that's a hill I'm dying on. Is that we would be a church of people that say, I want to be filled with God. I want to be filled with God and empowered by God. And I believe it's of the utmost importance that we allow ourselves to be filled by God. I can remember the first time I preached a sermon and I felt a call, but I didn't really know what to do with it. And this is might be where some of you are at. You feel a call, maybe not to ministry or preaching, but, but to some kind of ministry, something. And you feel a call, and there's a desire there, but you're just kind of like, how do I, what do I do? How do I, how do I be affirmed in this thing? Because you don't want to just jump out and do something. So I had this kind of feeling like I was called, but, but really didn't know what to typically do with it. And so I talked to a pastor, my pastor at the time, and I said, how do you know when you're called? And he looked at me and said, uh, uh, why does a rooster crow? Uh, it's a rooster? He said, yeah, that's right. See, a rooster is going to crow no matter what. And if you're called to preach, you're going to crow. You're going to preach. You're going to preach. And so I'm like, okay, well, if I'm called to preach, I better preach a sermon. Right? I better try. And so that's what I did. I talked to my youth pastor and I said, hey, I'd like to preach a sermon. He said, okay, I'm going to be out of town in a few weeks. So, uh, yeah, sure, go for it. And I'll schedule in. As soon as we penciled that date in, I thought, oh my goodness, what have you done? <laughs> the guy who skipped school on book reports or oral reports... The guy that got a C in oral communications. How in the world? What have I done? I've, I've lost my mind. I've, I've just lost it. I said, well, I'll get through this one, and then that'll be the last time I preach. So at least there's end in sight. And so I said, okay, so I better come up with something. So I wrote out this little sermon or whatever and thought, okay, this is this is... Yeah, this is good. This is it. So I sat on it. And then a night before, I was supposed to speak a Tuesday night. God wouldn't let me sleep. And this impression on my heart said, I want you to do this and not that. I said, God, this is my first time to preach. <laughs> Isn't it funny how you dialogue with God in such a weird... And so I was like, God, it's my first time to preach. Speak to me on the next time if I get another time, and then we can, 
do that thing that all preachers say, God dealt with my heart and I got to switch up my message, you know. And so I'm thinking, wow, I'm experiencing this on my first sermon. How in the world could this happen? And so I said, okay. I said, so I sit there and I said, no, Lord, I'm going to sleep. It's too late. Don't you know it's late, God, that this would be a major inconvenience because I got to work tomorrow, then get off work, rush to the church, get to the church, and then uh, do the sermon. So, so, God, you know this doesn't really make much sense for you to be doing this to me. And so I'm going to go back to sleep. Couldn't sleep. 3 a.m., I threw the covers off and I said, you win. I sat down at my little computer, uh, and God just started. I said, God, if I do this, you're going to have to help me because it's late. I don't know what's going on. Just, and he just started downloading stuff to me. So all day at work, I'm thinking about it. Man, I can't do this. What in the world have I done? Okay, psych yourself out. Just get through this one. You never have to do it again then you will have explored the calling and realized you're not called. All right. Yes, true. So get off work, run to the church, get there just in time. I'm sitting there during the worship service, and I can't even worship because I'm so nervous. I'm thinking about, okay, don't forget to say this. Okay, yeah, you need to do Okay, uh, but you can still fake it anyway, you know. You got to keep appearance, you know. And so I go, then it's like, it's just like I've, I entered into a daze or like a fog, like a weird haze. Like I was reevaluating my entire life at that point. And the youth pastor gets ready to introduce me. So I go up on stage and I'm standing behind him, and then I see all the people. I'm like, wait, they all look at you the whole time you're doing this? And so it's all I can think about. And then I guess he introduced me. All I remember is just a microphone getting handed to me. And I grabbed it. And I thought, I can't remember any of the sermon. I can't remember any of the sermon. What am I going to tell these people? But wouldn't you know it, that feeling of a warm bucket of honey being poured on me came back. <laughs> and all the fears and clarity came, and I was able to see things in the Spirit that I couldn't even understand and begin to say things. I was like, that's not even in my notes, but yeah, praise God, thanks for helping me out. And, and I just began to go through this and, and then gave the altar call and a, and a young man walked in who was going to commit suicide that night and he come to the front and gave his life to God and, and there were several people that said, man, that's exactly where I've been at and exactly what I'm going through. And I wanted to tell them, man, that didn't come from me. It came from God. It come from a power on high that is bigger than me, that is greater than me. And so if you're up here thinking that I've got it all together or that I'm, I've got this formula of how to do this or that man you're completely wrong I'm just asking God to please show up and make up the difference for my inadequacies and if you will come just humbly and offer yourself on that altar and be not a dead sacrifice but a living sacrifice God will consume
consume you with his fire and he'll give you things to say and what to do in the right moment every moment of your life. But this race isn't for the brightest and the best. It's for the fools, man. It's for fools. It's for those who are just foolish enough to say, God, here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Acts chapter 19, verse 1, Paul's going to Ephesus. The Bible says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, or the upper country, and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Ephesus was this city of opportunity and influence. It was the most populous and influential city uh, of antiquity of that time. It had over 300,000 people lived in the city. And for that time, that was huge. That would be like a city having millions uh, today. And so, so Ephesus was this key place, this, this strategic place that Paul was going. And while he's going there, the Bible tells us in verse 1 that he found some disciples. Now watch what the next question Paul asks. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Can you imagine upon meeting someone, the first question you ask is have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? That Paul finds these disciples, but in order to authenticate whether they're disciples or not, he shows up and says, oh, you're disciples. Well, have you received since you believed? That Paul's litmus test for being a disciple would be have you gotten a hold of the Holy Ghost then? Now, in conversation, that's usually the last question we ask the church people. All right? It's like, preach Jesus, then let them get mature, and then after years and years and years, then we'll introduce them to the Holy Spirit, maybe if they stick around long enough. Paul starts with the Holy Spirit. And I find this strange because in the book of Acts, the book of Acts, the church was born when it was filled with the Holy Spirit, right? So the church should start with Holy Spirit, then step out into ministry, not start and step out into ministry and then end up somewhere in the Holy Spirit, somewhere down the road. So Paul's initial question that he sees validating whether these men are disciples or not, he sees it as natural as breathing. Oh, if you've been saved, well, then you're going to have some encounter with the Holy Spirit. And so Paul asked them, have you received since you believed? Now, think if I was to go out into the parking lot. Somebody called me the parking lot pastor today because I'm out in the parking lot. Think if everybody that come up in the parking lot instead of saying, hi, my name is whatever, what if I would have said... Uh, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? People would have said, no, but I'm going to receive myself back to my car and I'm leaving because this is some kooky thing going on in here. 
But Paul shows up and seems to think this is the most important thing that you could possibly uh, ask somebody who was claiming to be a disciple or follower of Jesus. So they answered him and they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. The best kept secret in Ephesus and the best kept secret in Hot Springs right now is Holy Spirit. We hadn't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. See, Paul could somehow tell these disciples they lacked a measure of inspiration despite having very sound knowledge. Now check this out. If you go to, if you go to Acts 18, just a little bit earlier, in verse 24, this is what it says. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Right? We're in Ephesus here. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside, explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he visited or when he wished uh, to cross uh, Achaia, to the, brother, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So here we see Apollos' ministry, and it kind of fleshing out here in Ephesus. And so they've at least had some kind of form of some kind of preaching to them. There was some kind of baptism. What was John's ministry? John's ministry was to say uh, repentance of sin, to prepare the way of the Lord, and that there would come one after him, that whom his sandal he wasn't even worthy to latch, and that this would be the one to follow, that I must decrease and I must increase. And so they had gotten some kind of teaching here. They had been shown in the scriptures properly. They had, in a sense, got it right. Verse 3, and he said, Into what then were you baptized? Hear what they said. They said, Into John's baptism. So here's where they got it wrong. They were getting it right. Now they're getting it wrong. They're only baptized into a baptism of some form of repentance. But that repentance should lead us to Jesus and then Jesus is pointing us to the Holy Spirit. See, some of us stop before we get to where God wants us to go. We have a form of religion but deny the power thereof to continue and to go on. So they had got it right. Now they seem to be getting it wrong. In verse 4, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Now watch what happens in verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They're getting it fixed. Aren't you glad you can get it fixed? Right? Verse 6. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men 
and all. So after they got it fixed, they're fixing to start getting it done. Come on. They're fixing to start getting it done. Paul shows up at the edge of Ephesus, one of the greatest cities of the Roman Empire. It had a major seaport which gave it much wealth. It was a, a center of worship. The temple of Artemis and the cult of Artemis were there. And because what was allowed to go on in that city, it, it had so much demonic activity that the historians of that time said that even though there was 300,000 people in the city, there were more demons in the air than there were people on the ground. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See, the air was this unseen spiritual reality of activity that around them and that had increased because of what was going on in that city. People, I'm telling you, what we allow to go on this city is going to allow gates of the demonic activity to begin. I'm not trying to get spooky spiritual on you. I'm just telling you, the Bible says this battle is not flesh and blood, but it's principalities and powers and those that would exalt themselves over the knowledge of God. And so this is what was going on. So think of all the questions he could have asked this city that was needing a touch from God. He, he does not go in and say, well, what's your strategy to reach the city? doesn't say, what's your game plan to heal the brokenness that's everywhere? How should we approach this topic or that topic and be sensitive to what's going on? See, the one burning question for these believers is that if they had experienced the Holy Spirit, He doesn't ask for strategies or methods. What's the plan, guys? He, he just says, do you have the Holy Spirit? See, Paul approaching this city would be like us approaching San Francisco or New York or Los Angeles. How, would you, how are you going to turn the tide with some method? See, God is taking us to a place where we would empty ourselves of self and our own abilities and say, God, here I am. I can't do it unless you fill me and you empower me to accomplish this mission. And I want to submit to you that you can't make it in hot springs unless you yield yourself to God and say, God, here's all of me. Please take control and fill me. And help me. See, the question Paul asks is, this Holy Spirit on your life? And while the church is looking for better methods, God is looking for better men and women. God doesn't anoint methods. And He doesn't anoint strategies. God anoints people. And we'd rather Him anoint machinery or something... Because that way we could just watch God do it. Like some of y'all watching me right now. Come on now. I'm doing all the lifting. Just say amen. That's all I'm asking. That's right. See, we'd rather watch sometimes. Yeah, anoint that new program. I'll throw some money at it. 
go y'all. And the church becomes cheerleaders for a few that just say, God, fill me with the Holy Ghost and help me because I don't know what I'm doing. God's looking for people. (laughs) He wants to do it in and through you. And he's not asking you to get it together or to be in this thing a really good long time. You know what he's asking? Will you be willing? Would you offer yourself? I want to ask you today, is the Spirit on your life? Has he anointed you? kind of power was going to be needed as you stand on the edge of your Ephesus. As you approach your family, your campus, your job, or whatever it might be, what is it going to take? If we were to drop you off in the middle of Iran and say, be a witness for Christ. What's the first thing you would do? You'd go find a closet and you'd say, God. But see, we've been fooled as if that shouldn't be our strategy here too. That we could do it without God. That we could do it without Him. I got a lot more stuff, but I'm going to spare you. It's a story I heard, true story. And there was a man who had come to a meeting, and God broke out in the meeting, and people were falling out. There were things happening. Just the Holy Spirit showed up. And the man had gotten so weirded out, and so indignant that he pulled out his Bible and started skimming the Bible. And as people would come up, come back to their seats having experienced God, he would meet them at their seat and say, explain this, what's going on? You can't find this in Scripture. And they would just look at him and like, we don't know, it just happened. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. And so he did that to each and every person that would come back to their seat. And he'd finally had enough. He'd finally got a belly full of it. And so he grabbed his Bible and went to walk out. And as he was on his way out the door, God hit him. Boom. And dude went out. And he just laid there on his face for hours and wept. And all the bitterness began to leave, all the anger. It all left. He got up from that encounter and felt a call to India. So he went to India. He got some covering and someone to send him, and he went. And so they got report back, and they asked, how's he doing? How's it going? He said, well, he's planted over 600 churches. I said, well, get him in here. We've got to figure out what he's doing so we can replicate it. They brought him in and asked him, what are you doing? He said, well, he said, we just sit in a room and we wait until God shows up. 
And then when God shows up, we don't have to tell them anything. They're already running out the door to go do it. This thing isn't rocket surgery. But I want to know, is Lakeview going to be a people that will wait on the presence of God and be filled with the Spirit and to do exploits in this city? Would you stand to your feet with me?